Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and Finpods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. You know, tech companies, I think, get away with being part of ESG, despite the fact that they contribute to emissions as well. The fact that your phone is constructed in 40 different countries is an emissions contributor. The minerals required to power the lithium battery in your iPhone is an emissions contributor. And I think we love the idea that tech is clean and we love the idea that we can purchase it as part of ESG ETFs, but we've got to be realistic. It's not completely clean. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How do young folk get ahead these days with insane rents and rampant inflation? Is there any hope? And why is Gen X so damn quiet? My guest today thinks, talks, lives and breathes money and good living. Hello, Alex. Hello, Phil. Thank you for inviting me. Alex Nikolic is a lawyer, the founder of Broke Girl Wealth and the host of Big Swinging Stocks podcast. Let's get started because I just, I've just i been hearing so much from people that I know, younger folk, and insane increases in rents. At the same time, you know, this is even if you haven't got a mortgage, you know, I just got our message from the electricity company the other day, our electricity bill is going to rise by 28%. You live in Sydney. It's pretty expensive living here. What's it like getting by in Sydney? What's it like for you and your friends? Just tell us your anecdotal stories. Uh, I think everyone's everyone's in the same boat. You know, it's certainly the RBA rate increases have flowed on, I think, more immediately to variable rate mortgage holders and everyone's talking about the fixed rate mortgage cliff or see how much of a cliff it actually is. But for anyone renting, it's kind of even more dire in some ways. Renters have been stuck between a rock and a hard place for a very long time. We have not very favorable rental laws. Like we don't really have the long leases that Europe does. And my friends have been having like 300, 200, $400 a fortnight increases, which you'd say, okay, maybe it's the market returning post-COVID. But the way I see it, it's adjustment that often exceeds inflation, for one. And for two, it seems particularly cruel when there are, you know, our national vacancy rate and the vacancy rate in Sydney is less than 1%. So it's not as if you can just easily hop to another rental. And I think quite frankly, landlords are really taking advantage of that. And I am a landlord myself, but I do feel like Australia has a a very different relationship with property and perhaps a very unhealthy one. I think property investors are a different breed. They don't expect a downturn. In fact, they are militant about downturns in a way that share investors are not. No one is all that surprised about a bear market, but property investors just think that it should always, always be going up. And I think that results in really unfair outcomes for anyone who hasn't been able to buy 
yet. And so that's, I think that's the crux of it is my generation is sort of battling a really com- a conversation I don't think Australia wants to have, which is... It's a system that's rigged against them. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you totally. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah. No. And I think we don't have as standard leases that extend past a year. We do have no fault evictions. A lot of people aren't on a lease. You know, some people, landlords only allow them to take out a six month lease, enabling them to raise the rent every six months. Like there's some very cruel outcomes. And they come from the same generation that was able to easily buy assets and entrench themselves into the middle class. And I think the conversation is not so much how are we getting by, at least, you know, the short term is everyone will sort of just scrounge and there'll be a readjustment, right? People in higher rentals, they can't afford will come down and everything will push down. But generally speaking, people in salaried roles who have stable, consistent, above median income will probably be okay. The thing that I always wonder about is how are any of these people going to buy a house? What's going to happen to the middle class? And then for people who are on lower incomes, where exactly are they going to live? I don't want to get too doom and gloomy so early in the morning, Phil, but feels like that's the conversation we need to have. The other part of the economy which seems rigged is that you've heard the saying, Australian economy is homes and holes. And on the home side of things, the RBA, so much of our economy is dependent on tradies in their Hilux vans, and they will do anything to keep that sector moving along, which Mm -hmm. then has these kind of effects that we're talking about this morning. Just the amount of, it's not just construction, it's actually housing debt. In the OECD, I think we, in the top 10, we far outweigh our per capita in housing debt. We outweigh America. And we haven't really had a conversation about what that means. I think a lot of people think about some sort of adjustment a natural adjustment to the housing market. And this is completely anecdotal, but to me, it seems like a train with far too much inertia because a significant write down of Australia's housing property values, and I mean like 30% or more, we would be in a recession. Which is what the RBA has always tried to guard against, you know, that bear market for property investors that uh, people yeah. like us who are interested in stocks know all too well. But then at the same time, we have, so stocks on average, 7% per annum, sans taxes, maybe 5 Property over the last 2,000 years has historically risen by 2% globally on average. 2,000 years? <laughs> wow, you got data going back that far. <laughs> it's just generalizations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. a dollar in Rome back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2%. And when you look at a situation like 2020, when property right rose 20% in one year, the correction kind of feels like it's coming. Like if you were a share investor, you'd be like, ah, oh, it's coming. It's around the corner. A, yeah, a you can just see it. Those right prices down. are just going, you can, you're looking at your chart and it's going yeah. up. But in Australia, property is one of the most heavily buffered industries. Like we've just invited 50,000 people into the country, which has traditionally been Australia's number one favourite way of keeping the economy chugging along. And so I feel maybe really depressing, 
But for anyone waiting to buy a house, I'm not sure the crash is coming. I don't know what else is coming because I'm not quite sure, you know, do we enter a Hong Kong situation where people are living in little coffin-like apartments? Maybe. But I certainly can't see the government allowing willingly, like we would have to have like a, almost like a wartime effort if you were going to force the housing market to crash. You would have to have a, this is the housing market crash we had to have. Like you have to have a Keating-like approach and people would, people are so heavily leveraged and cross-leveraged across properties. And then th- that's a really funny thing for me actually, because as share investors, okay, maybe you make a bad pick. It doesn't take the rest of your portfolio down. On average, sure, overall return, maybe, but you've still got your ETFs or you've still got your blue chip stocks. You call that one a loss, you cut your loss and you call it a day. With housing, people are in millions. Concentrated. Yeah. Mm. And they don't think about it because traditionally housing has been such a good investment. So I think we've got to to have a really hard conversation here about the importance of housing to middle class and to stability. And if we are truly accepting that people will not be able to buy homes, then we have to adjust everything else. Like superannuation has to change significantly. Our wages have to change. Our rental laws have to change. But like systematically at the moment, what we're doing is being like, I'm not looking at this problem on the right. And I refuse then to make any significant changes to the problem on the left as a result. And I have been really extremely disillusioned with the lack of any kind of meaningful conversation by federal or state politicians in the last three years. Millennials are a huge demographic bulge. Why isn't the conversation being taken to government? I feel like millennials... You're quiet. We Should be out on the streets. If this was France, we would be Mm. rioting, right? Like... But I think that millennials are still of that generation where I, I think we truly have been gaslit and I think we believe that it's actually just because we don't work hard enough. Like rationally, I think most of us understand that when we get accosted by our boomer grandparents for not buying a house by now and that we're renting and rent is dead money and blah, 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 at Christmas time, most of us are like, well, that's ridiculous because you could buy a house for two blueberries and a candy, piece of candy. We're saving on average 12 years to put together a deposit. And property prices are going up over that 12 years as that's well. Right. It becomes further and further out of yeah. reach. Mm. And when you talk about the increase in COVID, no amount of saving was going to outpace 20%, right? Mm. And then, of course, the argument is, oh, we'll buy something you can afford. Okay. <laughs> so- But even that is problematic because you now have a significant stamp duty, right? Which is a a huge barrier. And we have empty houses. We've got houses being used for short-term letting, which is also draining and stifling the rental market. Fundamentally, I think that millennials kind of, we haven't really broken that lie. We still kind of think, and I think that to myself, I think, oh, you know, I got the really good job. I mm. have multiple other businesses mm. and I still feel like I'm not running fast mm. enough. Mm. 
So I'll come to my story about Hugh. I've, I've just um, a young friend of mine, Hugh, who's um, 30 years old, and we were having a chat, and he's so disillusioned and disheartened about ever buying a property. You know, mm. it's kind of like he's a tradie, so he could take his gig anywhere with him, and he's talking about, well, the only thing we're ever going to do is be able to go up the north coast and, you know, go to a country town and sit up there. Mm. And I had the conversation with him to say, well, you know about micro-investing and you can put in, you know, maybe $50, $100 every fortnight into it. You can let it compound over 30 or 40 years in ETFs. And after he told me that, he said, no one has ever had this conversation with me. Oh. And this is why I think we're both trying to do is have this conversation so people do understand property is not the be-all and end-all. There are other ways and it's not ideal, but you can get ahead long-term compounding. Yeah. I think that's a part of the institutional change. This needs to be talked about at school and so does buying with a friend. I mean, the way we did it, like my husband has been saving for a decade. I went the other route, bought an apartment. It fortuitously went up. And I used the equity release as my deposit, which coincidentally still, still, still difficult. But I think that getting comfortable with living, you know, letting go of property might even have a better life. We have to put aside the picket feds Australian dream. Like maybe that can come later. But in the short term, if you are renting, I almost see it as if you had a property, your mortgage would go to some unavoidable, sorry, your, your, your payments for that home would go to some unavoidable sunk costs, which provide no return, right? Like you pay land rates, right? You're not paying council rates where you get a service. Sure, it goes to the general community, but you're not seeing that return individually in the same way you do when you pay your mortgage. Part of it is set aside and pays the principal down. I almost think that renters should structure their finances that way. Like if you think about your rent as a deduction, interest almost, service cost, your money that would otherwise be paying a mortgage, that should go to investing. And what that percentage will look like is obviously going to be different when you're in your 20s as opposed to when you're in your 30s. But the muscle, I think, is so important. If we, you know, I think micro-investing was such a gateway drug for so many of us because if you didn't grow up with investing, it's terrifying putting $1,000 into anything. I wasn't even able to save $1,000 in my early 20s, let alone like, oh, I'm just going to stick it in the stock market. But I I find stories like that really exciting, but also so tragic. Like Paul Huey, what a failure of the Australian education system. And the thing is, it's really interesting, Phil, like I think about this a lot. People who grow up around money, they don't have these realizations because this is just osmosis. It's baked into how they live. And this is partly, partially the problem is that a lot of our politicians come from that class. I think some of them find it really difficult to fathom poverty and that makes it very difficult to write policy for people that you are fundamentally not understanding because you've never been in their circumstances. And I'm not saying I have also, my family were you know lower middle class and then middle class as we got on. I have also never experienced a situation where we didn't have food on the table. Like that was just never part of my life. But gosh, we've got to have empathy for the way that, you know, there's disproportionate, even just the inflationary situation is disproportionately affecting people. And then if you layer on top of that financial literacy. Which, or illiter- illiteracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, good on, first of all, good on Huey for being open about 
all the different ways you can get ahead. Because I think a lot of people, myself included, right? I really struggle with the idea of leaving Sydney because my job is here. The job opportunities are here, at least in my profession, even in media as well. And then my family is here and they're getting on. It's very difficult to leave because they need something all the time. But that's got to be part of the conversation for this generation, I think. We've got to get maybe more militant and flexible at the same time. A bit of protesting. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you confused about how to invest? LifeSherpa can ease the burden of having to decide for yourself. Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. Your investing hero is Peter Thornhill. Tell us about some of the most important things you've learned from him. So Peter's the antithesis of ETF investing. He doesn't like it. He's a big fan of listed investment companies. He's he's a local hero in Australia, isn't he? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got to get him on the podcast. You should. People kept on saying, you've got to get Peter Thornhill. He's so Mm -hmm. good. We had him on and it was like life-changing. Because first of all, he talks about why he dislikes ETFs and it's all about tax drag and the inconsistency of income. He's And he likes LICs. Yeah. Big Mm. listed company investor. And I think for a lot of people who have grown up with like heavy marketing by Vanguard and beta shares about ETFs, it's a really nice counterpoint. And maybe you disagree with it, maybe you agree with it, but I think we should be open to new investing ideas. And I think that's what Peter's really good at is being the controversial anti-ETF voice in a very crowded room of ETF providers. But one of the things he talks about is the industries that outperform. And the reason he likes listed investment companies is A, because he does like active investment. But the other thing is that he feels that the ASX 200 contains quite a number of industries that just drag. And if you just invest in industrials, you would have outperformed by far the performance of even some of the best ASX top 10 companies. And I thought that was a very contrary view. I really like listening to people who come in with a different perspective on investing. And that's what I like about Peter, a very staunch listed investment and and quite, I think, favours Australia quite a lot, to be honest. And I do wonder, my kind of one consideration with Peter is he's of a generation where he experienced the full brunt of Australia's mining and mineral prosperity. And I wonder if the same investing thesis can be said to persist. Mm. Why do you say that? Well, it's like the traditional wisdom of buy a house. So I I just wonder, is Australia going to be able to capitalise on the minerals it has? Is it going to be able to move, to decarbonise? And then, more importantly, would we be able to capture some of that secondary production in a way that we haven't before? 
because we've been very happy just extracting stuff, selling it for a really good price because it's very high quality, and then and, buying and it we're back. Very, and we're very good at it as oh, well. Oh, we're very good at it. We're very yeah. good at it. Across the whole country too. You know, it mm. can't be said that any part, well, I don't know, the Tasmanians are doing a great job of keeping the forests alive, but the rest of Australia is very happy to just dig stuff up and the state government's just collecting royalties. But it's just a consideration is like, can something, had an object in motion, continue in motion when it's a scarce resource? Because certainly some of these mining companies are going to have to pivot and the minerals that previously were perhaps less important are now going to become increasingly scarce and vital like, we, you know, coal, for example, in this country, thermal coal and other types of sort of like dirty coal are going to become less and less favourable. But this country's got to keep digging up coal. I don't, this may be, if we have millennial investors, I so encourage you, I don't want to plug the podcast, but I just think that everyone should go and listen to that episode with Kate Howitt about coal and mining because we have got to keep digging up metallurgical coal because we've got to make steel because we have to make electric cars and everything else as well. And everything's made out of steel. Yep. Every time I see an anti-coal ad now, I feel like I'm possessed by the ghost of Kate Howitt. And I feel compelled <laughs> to say, well, how are you going to drive your Tesla? What are you going to do? We can't recycle as much as we need to decarbonize. So that's my, that's my thing with the, Peter is A, no ESG overlay to his investments, which is fine because, you know, he's of a generation where it didn't matter and he could make a lot of money otherwise. And... I'm not necessarily convinced about the case for tax drag with ETFs. Jury's out. I have never actually seen someone sit down and do the numbers. It's always been hypotheticals. Mm. But on the consistency of dividend income, 100% agree. If that's something you're targeting, you will feel it with ETFs because as trusts, they're forced to disperse every last dollar. Whereas the whole purpose of a listed investment company is that as a company, they make the decision to retain some of those profits to give you as much as possible, a very consistent income in their cycle. And if that's, you know, something that people are targeting, then that might be a consideration. But if you're a growth investor, I would stay away from, <laughs> from list investment companies. But I think that, again, it's something to interrogate because I think it can provide a diversity to your portfolio in a way that, you know, people just buying ETFs won't have. LICs, and um, I've had Ian Irvine, who's the CEO of Licat, List in Investment and Companies and Trusts Association. Huh? Great oh. character, and I really yeah. like him. And and I, I like you, I like to hear the other side of the story. And well, one thing is LICs have been around now 100 years. Our oldest LIC, Whitefield, is 100 years old this mm. year. But there's a couple of points come out of LICs. One is, is that they they're closed-ended. We know the difference between, you know, open-ended ETFs and closed-ended. So when the market goes down, ETFs, if you're an index tracking ETF, you're just going to tumble along with the rest of the market. Whereas mm. an LIC doesn't have to, they've only got a closed number of units in the company. And so they can take advantage of those downturns by buying at lower prices that will bounce back further on. And the other point is, is that they if you're in the ASX 200, why do you need to own all of the miners? Why do you need to all of the banks? <laughs> there, It is diversification, I know, but there's mm. no diversification between a holding four banks, for example, or three miners. That's a very good point. I haven't thought about the world versus open, but yeah. Mm. yeah. 
they've been like absolutely derailed, I think. Unfairly. Yep. Mm-hmm. They, they have a place. Otherwise, they would have ceased to exist by now. You're all going to be getting your very rich Boomer Cramholz bottles, which inevitably <laughs> English miners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they go. What is this? What is this thing? What is this LIC? Yeah, you know? Yeah. What's Argo? What Argo. does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So learn about LICs. We recommend mm-hmm. everyone have a look. And we've got several episodes on this podcast about LICs. But then, to your other point about whether our minerals that we dig out of the ground are going to be have the same value, I've had a couple of very very good mining analysts on. Mm. who have talked about the recyclability of iron and yeah. copper, mm-hmm. that there's an increasing amount of iron and copper sloshing around the world, sloshing mm. the right world, rattling around the world, mm-hmm. and they are both eminently recyclable. And the other point with copper is, is that the amount of copper that will be used in electric vehicles is going to decrease as well. So, really? yeah, you know these stories we tell ourselves about lithium and copper and the minerals <laughs> of the future. <laughs> you know, a lot of them are just stories and I would recommend that listeners approach these really, really carefully, these stories, because they're not necessarily going to play out. And how do you express that mm-hmm. that idea in your portfolio? How do I? How should they? How should we all? How should we all? Sorry, that was a, that was a question yeah. for everyone, not not just for you, but it's just something for us to consider. I think. Yeah, I think just generally looking past the hype. I mean, mm. lithium is a fantastic example. It's like one of the minerals, and yet it was basically talked about as if it was the transcendent mineral. <laughs> I like that the transcendent mineral. Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay, well, you still need eleven others to make a electric battery, mm. why are we all fixated on lithium? But it marketing, it was phenomenal marketing. And it's a commodity as well and there's plenty of it and as soon as mm. something rises in value, there's a lot of people go, oh, I'll make some of this oh, stuff as well, we'll dig this. Yeah. Are you ETFs, LICs or single stocks? Where's your portfolio? What's, what's the weight? All three. Mm-hmm. All three. I. Are you happy to talk about this in public? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, of course. Mm-hmm. My portfolio has significantly decreased because I paid off my hex. I did the whole thing. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. It was very sad, like emotionally sad for me to sell my (laughs) stocks. But to be honest, there was a lot of stuff that was just rattling around in there that I just actually should have sold a long time ago. But Mm. when I worked it out, putting aside opportunity cost, obviously, when I worked it out, it was better for me to sell, even taking into account capital gains, because my hex was just that high. Mm. But before I sold, I had a mix of ETFs, international and Australian, very tech-heavy portfolio, just because mm. that's obviously what I was into. Mm-hmm. And most of my portfolio was in a diversified high-growth fund, which now thinking about it, getting to start fresh, I don't know that I would. It was VDHG, so the 10% bond allocation. I'm not sure I would go that route again. Mm. And then a few miners, actually, and Macquarie Bank. And the thesis moving forward as we, I, start to rebuild that portfolio again is going to be quite similar. ETFs and then probably an Australian listed investment company, probably maybe Argo, Maybe didn't Whitefield get bought out recently? No, no. Okay. Don't oh, it was Milton. So. Milton got bought out by yeah, Milton. Uh, Milton. Yeah, Sol Patterson. 
or otherwise list an investment company that has cut of the market that I can get on board with because I'm not necessarily going to buy A200 or VAS again mm. because I still think I think we wanting to limit the financial sector exposure, to be honest. Probably, you know, people are probably railing, like why, why miners? I still think that the mining sector has a lot of value to offer and I'm very pragmatic. Like I'm not suggesting I invest in a Santos, for mm. example. I would want to pick miners who have a very clear and demonstrable path to sustainability, even if that path is not completely clean. Because I don't think, you know, tech companies, I think, get away with being part of ESG, despite the fact that they contribute to emissions as well. The fact that your phone is constructed in 40 different countries is an emissions contributor. The minerals mm. required to power the lithium battery in your iPhone is an emissions contributor. And I think we love the idea that tech is clean and we love the idea that we can purchase it in, as part of ESG ETFs, but we've got to be realistic. It's not completely clean. Mm. And I think- and, you know, and the servers, the servers that the tech industry run. Yeah. Every time we send a GIF, it's pasted <laughs> across 16 different servers. So I just think we've got to electrify for sure. We've got to electrify the grid. We've got to power as much of our power as cleanly as possible. But I'm also very realistic that I don't think that's possible without the BHP bulletins and the Rio Tintos of the world. And <clears> I know people really love to hate miners but they're going to be integral to the decarbonisation. I'm really on this Kate Howard train. I do love her. It just sort of blew my mind because, you know, the very like traditional form of investing, if you want to focus on ESG, is get rid of your tobacco companies and your alcohol companies and your, you know, weapons manufacturers and invest in beautiful, wonderful software and tech companies. Okay. Where are their data servers? Where are they being? Mm. What are they being powered by? Are they all green? And uh, you know, you have Microsoft, sure, who's saying we're not just going to decarbonize our emissions annually; we're going to decarbonize our emissions since our inception. That's exciting. I can get behind that, but I'm not necessarily seeing the same from Meta, Alphabet, and the rest of them to justify saying, "Yeah, sure, we'll invest," and I'm happy to, you know, sort of ignore your labor practices your privacy controls, your position around, you know, meta. As investors, I think sometimes we can love the industry darling. Mm, and I'm mm. very concerned about that generally because as with the lithium hype, as with the Facebook hype, what is Facebook's product now if we've all left Facebook? Mm. I just think sometimes it's helpful to think about your own values against the marketing and kind of dig into, is it just marketing or is there actually substance here? What do you think about nuclear power? And I've, I've got a, basically, I've got a little campaign going because the current Miss America is a nuclear engineering student who's going to go into the nuclear industry. Wow. And so all the shots of her are with a hard hat and wearing a sash, you know, in front of, in <laughs> front of nuclear power plant yeah. facilities. And she's only got like 2,600 followers on Twitter. <laughs> Get out there. Oh, Grace wow. Stanky. <laughs> go and find her. <laughs> anyway, nuclear. What do you reckon? I think that, unfortunately, nuclear has had some really tragic incidents that have, you know, I think... I think there's two things. People don't really understand nuclear power and that freaks them out. 
maybe we've all seen that episode of Simpsons where Mr. Burns becomes nuclear powered. Yeah. <laughs> the three-headed fish in the it's local streams and staying stuff. Staying in yeah. our heads. <laughs> and I think we haven't really got a good solution yet for storage of waste materials. And the combination means that the fear sometimes overrides like practicality, which is that probably nuclear provides a part of the grid as part of like an overall energy strategy. However, where are you going to put it? No one wants a nuclear power plant near them. You know, Lucas Heights in, in Sydney is a nuclear power station, not despised by the local community. They, they hate it. They want to leave. Mm. And until we solve for that, I'm not sure that any politician worth their salt is going to be bringing it up as an alternative. But I think it has a place. I think it could have a place. But we've got to figure out what we're going to do with the barrels and barrels and barrels of nuclear waste. We started the episode by saying about Gen Xs, we don't ever hear from Gen Xs. Why don't we ever hear from Gen Xs? You know, the the generation immediately before you, they're so quiet. Mm, It's a really good question. Well, they were raised by the silent generation. They were told as children that children should be seen and not heard and barely heard or seen at all. So I think that they're still unpacking a lot of childhood trauma, <laughs> to be honest. But, um, you know, like they're working. They're mm. like really in the corporate rat race. I think millennials are as well, to be honest. We're still yeah. like what is mm-hmm. work-life balance? Gen Z and Gen Alpha, they're going to revolutionise the world, I think. But they're quiet because they're saddled with a lot of debt. Mm. And they've got fairly young children as well. Mm. I think the combination of that makes you very resistant to protesting because you've got a lot to lose. And, and the times they grew up were pretty good times anyway, so there was nothing to protest against as well. It was Well, they weren't allowed to, remember, Phil? Like, they're not, they weren't allowed to speak <laughs> as children. <laughs> well, uh, you, you can argue against it. Are you, are you a millennial or a Gen X? <laughs> I'm a boomer. Oh, <laughs> a broke very, boomer. <laughs> a broke boomer. Now, that's a, genera- that's a subset that should be protesting. Oh, definitely. Well, I've got this, I'm not sure if I'll put this in the podcast, but I've got this theory is that uh, I'm a tail ender, like the boomer generation was born between 1946 and 1964. And so a tail ender like myself, what I feel is we swallowed all the boomer bullshit, thought, oh, we'll just all be hippies and everything will be fine. You know? <laughs> and when, meantime, they got all the best jobs. They, got, they bought their house. Buy a house? Sorry? Yeah, that was the key thing. It wasn't a lot um, of financial decisions that had to be good. It was literally just buy a house. Buy a house. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Alex, tell us about the podcast. Where can listeners have a listen as well? I know we're fierce competitors and we don't talk about each other. <laughs> it's so well, obvious, isn't it? <laughs> yes. No. Well, look, there's more the merrier, I think, in this space. And if someone finds an outlet that they get along with and they love, I think all the better because we're all the better for being financially literate. I'm the host of Big Swinging Stocks, so if you can find us on it's great. wherever. It's a great name. I love that. Name. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's mm. so good. I am still trying to get Julie Bishop on the pod. That's like my ultimate goal. So if anyone has a hookup, mm-hmm. Julie, Julie, if you're listening to Phil's podcast, please come because- <laughs> <laughs> That's where you got the name from, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we're on all podcast platforms. But the series we've been running at the moment, which I've been really enjoying- is invest like and we sort of do a deep dive into the way different people invest. We've had Chris Jard recently on the pod, Thornhill, lots of, you know, analysts, 
people in different industries as well, bought stars. And I love it. I just find, like I said, I really enjoy the other stories and you'd be surprised by people's approaches. It's not just ETFs and that, you know, very important part of the overall portfolio perhaps, but it's just really interesting to hear how people have been building their wealth. And it's not, the stories are all so diverse, which gives me a lot of really exciting, I think, you know, it can be really doom and gloom for our generation, but I think we've just got to expand our minds. I think the options are there. I think there's hope. It might just not look like it did for our parents and that's okay. We'll find a way. (laughs) That's a great positive note to end on. Alex Nikolic, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Thanks for inviting me, Phil. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.